We have with us today Brother Rick Owens. Uh, Rick uh, grew up up above Crossville, Tennessee. Uh, Rick's family is not here today. He has a wife and four children, four girls, aged uh, 20, age 18, age 14, and age 11. And he has two dogs that are also girls. Uh, Rick is highly blessed. Um, Rick uh, has a, a varied background. Uh, he was uh, he was an auto body man, and he and I can get along real well. You know my favorite hobby. Uh, but uh, he has dedicated his life to the Lord in preaching the gospel. He's uh, uh, been on foreign fields a number of times in India and Indonesia. As a matter of fact, he's scheduled to go back to Indonesia in October of this year to to teach in the preacher training school there. Uh, Rick. Uh, has degrees from Ambridge University, Montgomery, uh, Bible and Ministry, the International College of Bible in Cookville, Tennessee, in Biblical Studies, Memphis School of Preaching Diploma in Memphis, Rome State Community College, and Tennessee Technical University in Cookville. Uh, Rick preached at the Wheeler Hill congregation for about two years, uh, and Following that, and while he was in school in Memphis, he also helped out at the Cordova Church of Christ for about three years there, I think, uh, preaching there and teaching. Uh, and after his uh, uh, preaching experience at Wheeler Hill, uh, Cordova needed some help. Rick went back to Cordova, and he's been there for about five years. He indicated that uh, it was never his intent to stay in West Tennessee. He likes East Tennessee. Uh, and uh, so that's the reason, uh, big, one of the biggest reasons that he's uh, considering changing jobs at this point. Um, we heard a fine Sunday school lesson, and we're looking forward to a great sermon. Uh, Brother Rick. I am delighted to be with you this morning. I appreciate the invitation, and I really was appreciating it when I was coming from uh, Memphis, and I hung a ride on to 24, and I began to see the mountains, and I really appreciated the invitation then. I told uh, the brethren when I got to Memphis, I said, no good Tennessean has ever claimed Memphis is part of Tennessee. That belongs to Arkansas. You cross over the Tennessee River heading that way, and you just, you're in Arkansas. And so I was happy to cross back over the Tennessee River coming east, and I haven't had the opportunity to come back and be in this neck of the woods very much since my father passed away, but I'm happy to be here today. I am saddened that my family cannot be with, uh, with me today and that you are not able to meet them, my wife Nicole, uh, Taylor is uh, my oldest daughter. She will be 21 in October. Uh, Alexandria just turned 18. Taylor has just finished up her first year of nursing school. And Alexandria will begin her first year of nursing school in uh, August. Uh, Cameron will be 15 next month. And she's already wanting me to allow her to drive all over the place. And I'm just not up for that yet. And then, of course, our baby, Blakelyn, she is 11 and will be 12 in September. And uh, I really wish that, that you all could have met them today. But they know Clay, and I see that Matthew's with us. I didn't recognize that young man. So good to see him, Matthew uh, 
and uh, Shane, uh, my girls just refer to them as the boys. How are the boys? And uh, so uh, we have a lot of good memories with them. Have you ever heard of or do you recall the name Larry Walters? You may remember his nickname, Lawn Chair Larry. Well, Mr. Walters was in the summer of 1982 a 33-year-old unemployed truck driver. He had been sitting around the house for some time and he was doing nothing, so he came up with an, an amazing idea. He tied 42 helium-filled balloons to a lawn chair. And in the backyard of his girlfriend's house in San Pedro, California, with the help of his ground crew, Larry sat into that lawn chair and he was tethered to the bumper of one of his friend's cars by two nylon strips. Well, with him into that lawn chair, he took some much-needed supplies. He took some water. He took uh, some binoculars and he took a BB gun because at some point he would want to descend from the air and he thought that it would be a good idea to shoot those balloons out with that BB gun. Well, as they were getting ready to unleash Larry into the sky, they cut one tether and the chair began to move up and when they cut the first tether, the second one broke. And it shot him into the air at 1,000 feet per minute. Now Larry's idea was to hover around in the backyard for an hour or two at about 30 feet. Well, Larry hovered around at 16,000 feet for several hours. In fact, a TWA pilot first spotted Larry and he called back and he said, I just saw a man in a lawn chair at 16,000. Well, Larry started shooting a few balloons out. Well, he dropped, and when he dropped, he lost his BB gun. So now he was stuck. Well, eventually he landed in the back of a neighbor's yard. He was entangled in some light wires, but he was unharmed. When he was asked why he would do such a thing, he usually gave the same answer. He said, people ask me if I had a death wish. He said, not at all. He said, it was just something I had to do. After all, I couldn't just sit there. Well, Larry Walters came up with a very terrible idea. But I believe that his reasoning behind that idea was admirable. After all, he really just could not sit there. And I think we can take that same application. And we can apply that to our spiritual lives today. I want us to open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's notice the first four verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, And it came to pass in the month, Chislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, and he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. 
And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah just couldn't sit there, could he? He had to do something. When he learned that the walls of Jerusalem lay in ruin, he mourned and he wept, and then he began to plan. He began to put together a plan, a method, whereby he could restore the walls of Jerusalem. We know that he was the son of Hakaliah, and he was born in captivity, but though he was born in captivity, he was raised in the faith of Israel's God. And he was also in the Persian king's palace. He was the cupbearer. And the cupbearer was a very prominent position, giving very confidential interaction with the king himself. Nehemiah became the governor of Jerusalem. And Josephus, though a secular writer, has been uh, or was very accurate in many things of his writings, he said of Nehemiah that he died of an old age and that the repaired walls of the city constituted his best and most enduring monument. I want us to notice a few things about Nehemiah. He was very able to undertake this duty that he had chosen. He was a true Israelite. He labored for the purity of public worship. He was a statesman. He labored for the integrity of the family life, of which we need some people to do that in our own time today. He wanted to keep the sanctity of the Sabbath. He wanted to be faithful to God. When we think of Nehemiah, we also think of Ezra. Ezra was the student and the preacher. But Nehemiah was the soldier and the statesman. Nehemiah had a plan. And he wanted to institute that plan. He was courageous. He was God-fearing. He brought fairness back to Israel. And he brought moral uprightness and an unswerving loyalty to God. Nehemiah was the man for the job. And those people that surrounded him were the people to help him fulfill that. When he discovered the condition of the city, he went to the king and he asked him a question. Nehemiah 2 verse 5, Nehemiah said, or he asked, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. He couldn't just sit there, could he? He had to do something. He had to go to work. And when we look at the situation under which Nehemiah found himself, let's take what he has done and let's make some kind of an application to that today. After all, when we look around God's kingdom today, what do we see in many places? Well, it's a sad story what we see, isn't it? I come from the city of Memphis. There may be 70 congregations within the city limits of Memphis, Tennessee. There may be ten faithful ones. And some of them are suspect in some things that they do. It's sad, isn't it? It's sad to not be able to go any longer on a trip and you see the name Church of Christ above the door and it used to be safe to go on in. Not so anymore. You have to do a whole lot of research. I'm going to be involved in a wedding come June the 11th. With uh, uh, I'm going to be officiating that wedding. Two very close friends of mine. They're going to be going to the Boston area. And 
My friend asked me the other day, he said, we're going to be around Boston on a Sunday. Can you locate a congregation? Do you know there is no Lord's Church in Boston? It's not there. Now you get on out of Boston just a little way, you're going west and you begin to find some churches, but then they have women preachers. They have instruments in their worship. They're doing all sorts of things. What does that mean? The walls are laying in ruin. We look around the, the Lord's kingdom and we need to mourn that. We need to sit down and pray about it and then we need to formulate a plan. We need to get up because we can't just sit there. Nehemiah was successful in building the walls of Jerusalem and we can be successful in rebuilding the walls of the Lord's kingdom. But we have to do it the way Nehemiah did it. Nehemiah knew exactly what he was doing. And I want us to notice this is our first point this morning. If we follow Nehemiah's plan, we're going to notice he was successful in building the walls of Jerusalem because the people were together. They were together. They were together and they were focused because they were invested. They were invested in what was going on. I heard my friend say something to me the other day. I guess I'd heard this terminology before and had forgotten it. He said, so-and-so had some skin in the game. Right? He had something invested in it. He had something that, that was precious to him and he had to take care of it. The French playwright Henri de Balzac said this, We do not attach ourselves lastingly to anything that does not cost us care, labor, or longing. Have you ever known someone that inherited a sum of money? You know, we have the lottery in Tennessee, right? We've had it for some time. What's one of the most common things that lottery winners have together? They do not stay rich for very long. They win that large sum of money, and then before you know it, they've blown it all and they're broke again. That's just one thing that's bad about the lottery, right? People that work hard and earn their money take care of their money because they are invested in it. We have to be invested. When David went to Aranah to buy his threshing floor, he wanted to make an offering to God. Well, Aaron, wanted to give it to him. He said, let me give it to you. And I'm going to give you everything you need to make the offering. Well, David had an answer for that. David said, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. 2 Samuel 24, 24. He was invested in that. And like David, Nehemiah, and the rest of the workers were invested because they were together. They were working together. He described how it unfolded in this way. Notice Nehemiah 3, 1 through 3. Then Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests. Then they builded the sheep gate, they sanctified it, and they set up the doors of it. Even under the tower of Mia, they sanctified it under the tower of Hananil, and next unto him builded the men of Jericho, and next to them builded Zacher the son of Emery. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanah build, who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. 
Do you see what's happening in this passage? All the different families of the clans got together and they worked, they were invested and they were successful. They accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. God's people can do that today. People from different communities can come together and they can focus in an area and they can be successful. But they have to be personally invested. You have to be invested much like the second string quarterback of Alabama was at one time. Many, many years ago when Coach Bear Bryant was winning championships and Pat Dye was coaching at Auburn, Alabama and Auburn was in a tight game. Alabama was leading, and I'm, I'm no Alabama fan, by the way, but Alabama was leading by five points. The first string quarterback went down with an injury. So Bear Bryant sends in the second string quarterback, and he tells the young man, he said, under no circumstance are you to pass the ball. Whatever you do, hand it off, hand it off, and if we have to, the defense will win it for us. Well, that went well until the third down. In the third down, the young man was rushed from the pocket, and in all the confusion and the fear of, I'm sure, Coach Bear Bryant, he passed the ball to an Auburn cornerback, the fastest man on the field. With ten seconds to go, the man was headed in the other direction for six points. Now, you always have a fastest man and you have a slowest man. Well, the slowest man happened to be the second string quarterback for Alabama. But right before he got to the goal line, that second string quarterback had run that man down and had tackled him. Alabama won the game. After the game, Pat Dye went up to Coach Bear Bryant. He said, now explain this to me. How did the slowest man on the field run down the fastest man on the field and keep him from scoring? Coach Bear Bryant said, well, your man was running for six points in the win. My man was running for his life. That man was invested, wasn't he? He was invested in what that team needed. He was invested in the victory. We have to be that way. We have to be invested in those things. How do you think Nehemiah showed his investment in those around him? Each individual was invested. Each individual was invested. Nehemiah kept it simple, didn't he? Every member of every family worked on the area of the wall next to where they lived. That was simple. It was uncomplicated. And the work of the church is uncomplicated if we want to look at it in that scenario. All we have to do is build. We don't have to necessarily change the world everywhere. Just build in our area, right? When we become personally invested, each individual will do his or her part. That's what it means to come together we minister to those in need, and along the way, we teach the Bible, we help people come to an understanding of what God wants, and we take them to heaven with us. I tell my girls often, I say, you know, only one person can get me to heaven, and that's me. Only one person can get my daughters and my wife to heaven, and that's them. But what we need to do is get ourselves to heaven, get our families to heaven, and let's drag as many people with us as we can. And that's kind of what was going on in Nehemiah's day. James said this, James 1.27, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, 
to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's my responsibility, to keep myself unspotted from the world. And we practice true religion by fulfilling what we know is the Great Commission. Jesus said, Mark 16, 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now how do we do that? Well, some of us just go, right? Some of us aren't able to go. Some of us help to fund others to go. Some of us do our mission work in our backyards, right? Across the fence, talking to the neighbor. That's how we do it. We're building walls close to where we live. Paul asked the Roman brethren this question. I think this is a great question. Of course, it, it was a rhetorical question, but let's notice Romans 10, 13 through 15. Paul asked this. He said, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? He asked, How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And then he said, How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. How can our neighbors or friends learn about Jesus? Can we just sit there and wait? Are we going to wait for someone else to tell them? I've done that before. I've waited. We've all known that individual that we liked really well, but we were just a little uncomfortable talking about religious things with them. But who's going to do it? What if it all boiled down to me? You see, Nehemiah and the people were successful because they came together. They were invested individually in what was going on. But something else contributed to their success, and this is our second point. They focused on a single task. No single person was responsible for building the walls. They had cooperation. They came together and cooperated each person did at least one thing and no one person was burdened with it all. That's how we come together and focus on a task. If we all do that, and we start out doing one thing and we learn how to do it very well, then we have great success, right? Everybody has different talents. Everybody can do certain things. I'll tell you, at Cordova, often they ask me on our fourth Sunday singing if I want to lead a song. They used to ask me that at, at Wheeler Hill, and I said, Look, if I get up and try to lead a song, you'll take me outside the camp and stone me to death. You don't want me leading a song. I can follow along, but I can't lead. But see, we can do one thing. We need to find that one thing, right? You know, it was said once that there are at least four major bones in any organization. You have the wish bones, those that wish somebody would do something. You have the jaw bones, those that talk about it but never do it. You have the knuckle bones, those that knock everything. And then you have the back bones, those who carry the majority of the work. The reason Nehemiah was successful was he had mainly backbones, right, in his group. The people shared the work and they did it to the best of their abilities. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, For as the body is one and hath many members... And all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. 
so also is Christ. Now, he had a few wishbones, and he had a few jaw bones, and a few knuckle bones, I'm sure. Well, we really, we know that he did, right? Nehemiah said this, And next unto them, Nehemiah 3, verse 5, And next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. Well, we had some wishbones or some jawbones or some, some kind of bone in there. They weren't putting their neck to the work. See, they weren't invested. They weren't working together. They thought they were above the lowly work of a common Jew. Have you ever known anyone like that? Have you ever known anyone that kind of set themselves apart, put themselves up on a pedestal? Let me tell you what I've noticed a lot in places of the Lord's church. I've often noticed that you, you have the membership then you got the preacher. That's not scriptural. That's not biblical. You have one body. One body. And everybody in that body works together. I tell the, the members at Cordova, I said, I'm just a member like any other member. I happen to preach on Sunday morning. But we have a whole church building full of preachers. And so I tell them, don't single me out for any reason. But the Pharisees were like that, weren't they? Jesus dealt with that. When Jesus healed the woman who had the infirmity for 18 years, they rebuked Him because He did it on a Sabbath day. But Jesus said this. He said, you hypocrite. You hypocrite, Luke 13, beginning with verse 15. Do not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away for watering? And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now they're going to take an animal to water, but they want this woman who suffered for eighteen years to stay bound? They didn't care about the work. They didn't care about those around them. But the cooperation between the people as they focused on this task led to success, but this cooperation came from collaboration. They got together. They understood. They had a plan. The reason no one person did all the work is they were organized. They were organized. I knew a guy one time, and not too long ago, and he was the workingest fellow I'd ever seen in my life to get out of work. I told him, I said, if you'd just get a job, you wouldn't do half the work you're doing now. Just get a job. And you don't have to worry about all this. He'd work harder not working than uh, any normal person would. But he wasn't organized. You notice before the work started, Nehemiah went down and investigated, didn't he? He went and he essayed the situation. He looked at the walls. He wanted to understand what was going to happen. See, we have to use that concept in our work. We have to look around and understand where do we need to focus our time and our energy that just makes sense though, doesn't it? That's what we have to do. Think about the success of the local congregation at the, at, in the Lord's church if we incorporated that ethic. Boy, if every congregation of the Lord's people did that, it would be unstoppable. I'm telling you, let's talk to the ones we live closest to. Let's, let's invite those with whom we work. It's just easy to talk to people we already know. The people worked together. They focused on the task. And finally, our last point is going to be this. 
one of the most important points that they were successful is they developed their talents. They developed their talents. Before we can develop our talents, we have to have a purpose to work. We have to have a mind to work, don't we? It has to be dedicated. It has to be a decision. It has to be carried out. It has to be done thoughtfully. I just read about a man in Massachusetts the other day. He said that he owed the government some money. So he was suing the money. He was suing the government for $250,000. Now he was suing them for $250,000 because he had borrowed $250,000 and he said, that's a great burden on me. I've been out of work and I can't pay it back. But he had been out of work for 14 years. He didn't have a mind to work, did he? He didn't purpose to work. See, that's not what was going on in Nehemiah's day. The psalmist declared this, Psalm 17, verse 3, Thou hast proved mine heart, thou hast visited me in the night, thou hast tried me and shall find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. We have to have that mindset. Our purpose must be to develop and to mature as Christians. You know, we may even find something that we can, we might even discover we, we can lead a song or two every once in a while if we need to do that, right? Of course, I'm not talking about our sisters. But we can learn some things. We can find out that we have some talents we had no idea that we had. Nehemiah pointed out a very interesting fact later in chapter 3, Nehemiah 3.28. He said the priests repaired the horse gate. I thought the priests worked in a temple. Well, they did. But they had to come out of that comfort zone, didn't they? Something else needed to be done, and they were able to do it. It wasn't breaking God's law for them to do that, so they did it. I think that's something we need to apply to our lives. We need to take up roles of different things and see if we can do it as we come together. There's another thing about developing our talents is we have to progress in them, right? We have to make our talents better. We have to develop them. There's never been one believer in the Bible that Jesus wanted to leave the same way that He found them. They needed to get better. They needed to progress. In other words, He never called a person to stay the same old person. He always changed those with whom He interacted. They changed in some way. Some changed by obeying the gospel. Some changed by not wanting to obey the gospel, but He had planted the seeds of life in their minds. God wants each of us to grow in our talents. If we don't use our talents, they will be taken away from us, right? Notice Matthew twenty-five twenty-eight. You had the one talent man, and he went out and dug a hole and buried that talent. He didn't put it to good use. And you had a five talent man and a two talent man, and they went out and they bartered and they traded and they came back and they gained an additional five and two talents. And then when the master came back, the, the one talent man said, oh, I knew you were an austere man. I knew you weren't really fair. You, you uh, uh, reaped where you didn't sow. Well, just because he said that didn't make it true, right? The Lord never reaps where he doesn't sow, but he has a right to do that if that's what he wants to do. But he told them, he said, Take therefore the talent from him and give it to, unto him that has ten talents. Now here's how we lose our talents in this life. We don't really lose them in this life. This is how we're going to lose them when we stand before the judge. We may have a talent that has gone unused, and that talent will be eternally in hell when we stand before the judge, if we haven't used it. 
Nehemiah and the people were successful in building the walls of Jerusalem. And that is a great example to members of the church today. But the only way they were successful in doing it is they came together, they focused on a task, and they developed their talents. But I want to close with this one thought. One very important thing, and then the sermon is yours. Only God's people were permitted to work on the walls. You know, you had those strangers come to Nehemiah and offer their help. Nehemiah said, no, you're not God's people. You can't help work on the wall. We can't build the Lord's church unless we're members of the Lord's church, right? How do we do that? Faith that Jesus Christ is who He said He was, John 8, 24. Repentance of all past sins, Luke 13, 3. Confession that Jesus is the Son of God, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And that's exactly what the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts 8, verse 37. And then immersion in water, were buried in water with him into his death, Romans 6, 3 and 4. We're come up out of the water to walk in a new life. Now we are a part of God's family. And we can build the walls. But you know, not every part of God's family always stays in the family. Sometimes family members leave, don't they? Sometimes they leave and for, var- for various reasons. But here's the thing. If we want to get to heaven, and I know that we do, we've got to be members of God's family. And if we've left God's family, we've got to come back to Him. God has made provision for that. If we leave the faith, if we quit walking in the light, John 1, 7, 1 John 1, 7, we can come back to Him through confession and repentance, prayer to Him. Now, if someone publicly sins and there's no way to go to a certain individual and correct that sin, then there has to be a public confession. Now, confession doesn't necessarily mean revelation, but we have to own the sin. We have to say that I've done wrong. Now, if it's a private sin, we go to God privately, and He'll forgive us. He'll bring us back. It's like going out and getting the one sheep. They left the 99 back at the stall and went out and searched for the one. And there was more rejoicing in heaven over that one sinner and all the saved. If you stand this morning in a position to answer this Lord's invitation at this hour, whether you've never obeyed the gospel and you want to be a part of God's family, or you have and you've, you've fallen away, don't leave here today not in a covenant relationship with God. Come to Him. He wants you. His arms are wide open. But if you have need to answer this invitation at this time, do that as we stand and as we sing.